0: Hello, and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu,
1: horror films,
0: and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker.
1: I'm Scott Dolwood.
0: And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're talking about morality in role playing games. Before we get into all that moral stuff,
1: what is going on?
0: This weekend, this coming weekend, after the release of this episode, so the, I think it's the 1st, 2nd, 3rd of September, I'll be at Albert and Wizard staff in Leamington Spa. It's a relatively small convention. takes place over the Saturday and Sunday morning. And lots of good games on offer. I'm running a couple of Cthulhu games and
1: very much looking forward to it. And I've been GMing more stuff for Ain't Slade. Nobody. They recently put out a three-part recording of Nightbus, the scenario that I wrote for issue 8 of the Blasphemous Tome. Now, you might remember that I did actually record this once before as a live stream with How We Roll. When it came round to writing up the scenario for the Blasphemous Tome, I did modify it a fair bit, however. And this recording with Ain't Slade is much more like the version that you'll find in the tome, so I didn't feel too bad about double dipping. So thank you very much to Cappy Cup and to our good friend Cat Edmonds and to Danny Scott for riding the night bus to Penge and beyond with me. You can find all three parts on the Ain't Slade Nobody public feed.
0: And now, onto our main topic, morality in role-playing games.
1: So moral codes of all sorts have played a role in RPGs pretty much since the outset, beginning perhaps with alignments in D&D. But are these an essential part of RPGs? Do they make things more interesting? And who is ultimately responsible for setting the moral tone of a game? There's so many things to unpack there. I mean,
0: (laughs) moral codes have been part of role-playing games since the beginning. Discuss.
1: (laughs) Well, for a start, what do we mean in this context by morality?
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, a sense of what's
1: good and what's bad, I guess. I think it goes a bit beyond a simple binary choice like that. Yes, I mean, that's a huge part of it. But good and bad are obviously very loaded concepts that are in themselves almost impossible to define. And... I think a lot of it has to do with characters that have codes of ethics that are perhaps internally consistent, or at least follow general principles of ethics, that it maybe has to do with some of the situations that you encounter in games that force you to make moral choices, is about the kinds of antagonists you meet and what their motivations are. And I think reducing it to good guys and bad guys is, I think, almost childishly reductive.
0: But we want to create drama, don't we? So Mm. we want something to push against. And in a very broad sense, that's something I feel is wrong in the game that I need to fix
1: absolutely and that's a big part of it but i think you can also be at odds with an antagonist who you might actually agree with uh, and that's perhaps a lot more interesting
2: those are the best antagonists in my experience the ones that you can very much see yourself kind of reflected in and empathize with what they're doing
1: yeah i think we'll dig into that in a lot more detail later on in the episode but before we Branch off too far in that direction. Let's talk about how morality actually works in games, at least games that attempt to model or enforce morality on a mechanical level. Obviously, the granddaddy of all these things is the alignment system in DD, which was my first exposure personally to such things when I was playing ADD back in the early 80s. And is still there in the game it's still a big part of it it's the source of any number of memes online you still see alignment charts popping up for absolutely fucking everything on social media and it's become a kind of shorthand for talking about certain moral codes but what do we actually make of it yeah as
0: you say that alignment grid has transcended dnd because my daughter saw that one point and she- like, oh, that comes from D&D, because you didn't count it online. Mm. You know, the lawful evil, lawful neutral, all that stuff. But didn't realise it was a D&D thing originally. What was the question you posed, Scott? What do we actually make of it?
2: I think it's really confusing. And also restrictive as well. Like, oh, you're a good paladin, you wouldn't do this action, you wouldn't do that. I want to play the character, I want to fucking play it. But before you get on to enforcing it, and the
0: whether it's restrictive or not i think getting to grips with what those things mean what particularly when i was like i don't know 13 what the fuck is lawful good what's lawful evil and then what's chaotic neutral you know these things and when you read the ad d dms guide man the terminology <laughs> and language they use in it is i just read some of it and i'm like I mean, I think I understand those things now, but reading that text again, I'm really not sure I get it off the page.
1: Do you have any examples?
0: Okay, Matt, pick an alignment. You know the nine alignments,
2: right? Yeah, let's go for one that's vaguely interesting. Uh, Chaotic Neutral.
0: Chaotic Neutral. Okay, just give me one second to find that.
1: Somehow I knew you were going to pick Chaotic Neutral, (laughs) Matt.
0: (laughs) Okay, Chaotic Neutral. The view of the cosmos holds that absolute freedom is necessary. Whether the individual exercising such freedom chooses to do good or evil is of no concern. After all, life itself is law and order, so death is a desirable end. Therefore, life can only be justified as a tool by which order is combated, and in the end, it too will pass into entropy so should i steal this gold
2: or what should i do <laughs> i agree with most things there up until it went up its own ass about death being a desirable end it's no i want to live forever or die trying bitch i'm not doing that i mean is that helpful that text no that is so vague and up its own ass that does sound quite pretentious and they're all like that <laughs> they're
1: all like that the thing that made that alignment system make a bit more sense to me when I was a teenager was the fact that I'd read Michael Moorcock's Eternal Champion books, which very much use those concepts mm. because they are fundamentally all about the struggle between law and chaos. And there is one of the books is one of the Corum books. I can't remember which one, but where the protagonist Corum travels to different realms which have been taken over by pure forces of chaos and pure forces of law the law one becomes absolute stagnation there is no growth no creativity etc It's just absolutely rigid stuck in time and the chaos one is absolutely so chaotic that again nothing can actually happen because everything's happening and it all counteracts each other and so The philosophy behind them is about the importance of balance or the creative union of these two opposites. And looking at those as absolutes within the D&D alignment matrix, then, yeah, I mean, you can sort of see how that maybe informs the extremes, the axis, or Mm. extreme adherence to them, and what the pathologies of them can be alongside the actual interpretations. But at the same time, it it can get very wanky.
0: I mean, if I may just take a moment just to talk about alignment in D&D, In the original D&D from 74, there wasn't that alignment grid. We just had lawful, chaotic, and neutral. There was no good and evil. Yeah, I mean, you talked about Moorcock. I talked in a previous episode about Paul Anderson's Three Hearts and Three Lions, which uses that same kind of uh, duality uh, between law and chaos. And then... In, I think, 77, so the Dungeons & Dragons basic set introduces this second axis of of good and evil. So good kind of implying altruism and a respect for life, and evil implying selfishness and no respect for life. And alongside that, I was also just looking up the definition of ethics and morality. And it seems to me that lawful implies honour and respect for society's rules – which is kind of like a code of external ethics mm. that you're following. And chaotic, implying a more rebellious, individualistic outlook, relates more to morals, which perhaps can be seen as more of an internal sort of decision. If we simplify ethics as an external code and morals as a, as an internal thing, that's a bit like chaos and law. That's kind of how I saw it in a, in a perhaps simplified manner. And then neutral, obviously being... You know, somewhere in the two. So if we think of personifications of those chaotic good, we Robin Hood, right? That's a, a personification of, of chaotic good. So taken from the the rich, you know, breaking the law basically, breaking the the rules, but for good ends. Whereas lawful evil, you know, a tyrant. So somebody who is is following a code of rules but doing what we in inverted commas evil.
1: And if you're using Robin Hood as the big example of chaotic mm. good, then the Sheriff of Nottingham in the the stories is very much lawful evil, that yeah. he is following the laws of society but to his own personal ends. And over the editions,
0: those have been in flux. So I think in fourth ed, I think they knocked out some of those elements of the grid. I think it was reduced to about five different alignments, but then they've come back in fifth ed. And I think one of the big changes which could take us on to other grounds immediately, but we'll come to later in the episode, perhaps, is that in fifth ed recently they've stated that player and monster races no longer have pre-assigned alignments. Yeah. So you don't have races that are evil. So, you know, you can play your your good orc or whatever. But some monsters, such as demons, have a strong association to a given alignment feature with the word typically featured next to their alignment. So your demon might typically be evil. I don't know why I find that funny. Mm. I kind of find that funny.
1: I think what is interesting about that is it gives you freedom to do what a lot of fiction writers have done mm. which is sort of take these characters who are very much the exception to the society or the the environment in which they were created or grew up in or whatever and have turned against it i think you know doing that even with a, a demonic character is interesting
0: yeah, going against type or against the expectations
1: is always interesting,
2: isn't it? I want to see a mind flare paladin now. Yes.
1: Why not? But I think this is something we might get into in the next episode. I think there are still elements of that in the Cthulhu mythos that are interesting to address, and it's interesting to see D&D moving away from that, but i very much want to play a game in which you have mythos entities who are again far more morally ambiguous i mean we see that obviously in with the ghouls in, in dream quest of Unlock death which we talked about but yeah i think there's plenty of scope for doing that with other entities but like i say we'll talk about that next time
0: matt you also looked at some examples of games that enforce morality or a moral code in some way do you want to hit us with a one off your
2: list the big one there really is uh, going back to the first game I ever played, Vampire the Masquerade. When I went and had a look through the Old World of Darkness books, unless I'm mistaken, unless I'm missing something glaringly obvious, I think it's the only one of the original World of Darkness games that actually has a morality system in it. It's defi- mm. definitely the big three that I looked at. Werewolf doesn't have one, and Mage certainly doesn't have one.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Hmm.
2: So the, the newer versions of them, so the, uh, the Chronicles of Darkness games, do.
1: Oh.
2: I'll get onto that because it's a nice evolution of how they've taken the concept in Vampire and then applied it to the other games in their own fashions. In Default Vampire, you have the path of humanity. You have the, the core ethics that the vast majority of vampires live by because they were, once upon a time, they were human. Uh, you start off normally around uh, seven. That's kind of the normal uh, level that your average person would be at. It's a scale that goes from one to ten. Right, ten being way more human than human,
0: kind of saintly.
2: Very much so, yeah. I mean, when you get to ten, for a a sin at that point is having selfish thoughts. So it's really mm. difficult to maintain a level of humanity that high. Right. It, yeah, I find it quite hard. Yeah. <laughs> But what they have is, on this scale of 1 to 10, they have a list of example acts that, if you perform them, these are considered a sin. So if you have a humanity equal or higher than that rating, you then have to make a humanity test because you perform something that should be going against your code of ethics. Mm. Like, for instance, if you have humanity 7, the normal level, and you commit theft, that's a sin, a level 7 sin. So you then have to make a test to see if you'll drop down to humanity 6. But if you are, let's say, Humanity 3, which is pretty damn monstrous at that Mm. point, then, yeah, you can go around firebombing places and committing intentional property damage without a problem, because that's a level 5 sin. Mm. So what would it take to reduce you from 3 to 2? Planned violation, outright murder, savoured exsanguination, so basically draining someone dry completely for the hell of it. Right. Or casual violence, thoughtless killing, feeding past what you need. Or utter perversion or heinous acts being level one. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they do leave it quite open to interpretation when they just say utter perversion. Hmm. Because I think taking highlighters to RPG books is pretty perverted, but uh, people still do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we got to Matt's moral code already.
1: Yes. (laughs) Casual murder, that's okay. Highlighters. Yeah. Yeah, Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah one of the things that they introduced later in, in the game is that that isn't the only moral code that you can abide by. That there are vampires, normally in the Sabbat, which originally was designed as the antagonist faction in the game but became a playable faction later on in, in as the game evolved, where they have what they call paths of enlightenment. The main difference from these from humanity is the default is you look physically monstrous. Mm. You are removed from humanity to an extent where it promotes physical change, which is something we'll we'll see in cult as well for the old traditions. Some of these examples of paths of enlightenment are like the path of Cain. People on this path want to become more like Cain in order to discover the limit of their powers and the undead form. You've got Path of Honourable Accord, where they want to be more like a knight, so their word is their bond. Very, I'm a paladin, hey! And also Power in the Inner Voice, which is that vampires are considered the masters, so they want to be commanding everything around them. You could kind of correlate that maybe with a lawful evil kind of uh, alignment. Mm. You mentioned it's a bit like being a paladin.
0: Is it so you can choose those paths? Almost like choosing a class for your character, it's a... I'm going to follow this code, it's, it's how I'm going to play my character. It's mm-hmm. guiding, as a player, I'm picking this, and it's showing me a model of of how I'm going
1: to portray my character in the game. It sounds more like choosing an alignment than choosing a class.
2: It's kind of halfway between the two, because certain paths are promoted more by certain clans. Like, you'll find the Lusombra gravitate towards, well, if you go by stereotypes, they gravitate towards Path of Night. Venture and tribute go more with path of honorable accord. Gangrel and may go down path of feral heart. So there's various ones are likely attributed to certain clans. But in theory, anyone can grab them. And because there are some which are blatantly downright evil, such as the uh, path of evil revelations, which is normally what the Bali and other infernalists go for. So these each have like an ethical code that they adhere to, do they? Yeah, there's a whole, again that whole rating of one to ten that they have for humanity. So, right. using the paladin example there of the uh, path of honorable accord, uh, rating seven. So your normal rating, typically, yeah. failing to participate in your group's rituals because it's normally Sabbat, they're quite ritual heavy. Right. Uh, that's a rating seven sin. Five would be failing to protect your allies. Three showing cowardice. So you really got to be a brave guy here. Uh, two killing without reason and one breaking your word or oath, failing to honour an agreement.
0: Yeah, that's interesting then, because it takes it away from just general humanity as a generic term, Mm. to a code that's specific to a particular clan, if you like, a particular, I don't know, archetype, whatever you want to call it. That seems a more interesting way of of handling it, I think, because it makes it more specific.
1: And also, I think by putting some thought into the internal consistency there and the motivations, it takes it away from, oh, you know, the antagonists are doing bad things because they're bad people, and it's more that they have a consistent internalized code of ethics that they're following Mm. that are at odds with yours, Mm. but they at no point are thinking, ha, 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 I'm the bad guy, they are still. Following what they consider to be a justified, morally defensible path is just not your path.
2: Yeah, exactly that.
0: If I can just reflect on my own experience playing Vampire back in the day, we did have that humanity scale and we applied it. I think the the thing for me was like, okay, we're you know humanity seven as your sort of starting point, all good. Then you've got to go out and feed. And we Mm. generally just drew a veil over that. But I can remember one time Phil was like, how are you feeding tonight? And we're like, well, are we just going to go out in the street and jump on some random person? It was like, "Oh, actually, that's Mm. not very nice, is Mm. it? (laughs) Are we the bad guys? You know, it was was very much that realisation that when you go, if you're forced to confront that, oh, well, you're saying level seven sin would be theft, shoplifting. Well, that seems quite minor compared to you know, grabbing an innocent civilian and draining blood out of them, mm-hmm. even if you're
2: not going to kill them, right? It depends on how much you take and what circumstances you take blood. Do you take more than you need? Yeah, but even if you just take like a pint, that's nearly an armful.
0: I mean, <laughs> even if you just take some, I mean, can you imagine somebody <laughs> doing that to you, grabbing you and biting you and draining blood out of you? That's going to be pretty traumatic.
2: That's quite a way significantly down the list because you've got level six would be accidental violation, such as drinking a vessel dry out of starvation. So it's kind of saying that it's acceptable from seven upwards, but you'll find as long if you just take one or two points. Normally, three is the point before they feel like they're kind of drunk, that they're losing control of their uh, their senses. But is the expectation you're taking that blood from willing participants? You doesn't always have to be willing. You, you can establish a herding game, which makes it a lot easier. But it can be you just grab someone in a nightclub, go in a corner and look like you're making out and then bite their neck. As long as you don't end up killing them, that's the key defining feature.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's my point. That seems quite a long way down the humanity <laughs> scale to me. That, that act seems monstrous to me.
2: The line in the game is a monster. Uh, oh, how does it go? So the the struggle between the beast and man, it's uh, a monster I'm less less a monster I become.
1: Yeah. But do they differentiate between taking blood from a willing donor or taking it by force or deception like that nightclub example you gave? Mm -hmm. Let's just say, for example, that you encountered a human who would willingly give you their blood because they've worked out you're a vampire and Mm. they see it as being i don't know sexy or a path to becoming a vampire themselves or whatever then that's one thing but you cornering someone in a nightclub and going slurp 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 that is a very much a, a predatory act
2: from what i remember of the hierarchy of sins table i don't think it makes too much of a difference mm. for the willingness part but i know the gm would then potentially say if that you've got a willing target like that you could develop and cultivate them as a herd which would make getting blood a lot easier in future nights
0: mean, as i remember from sort of play it was something that was and i think this was rules as written as well as how we played it was very much that was not really part of the game it was there was a a rationale put on your sheet perhaps you'd got a herd or there was Mm -hmm. somewhere where you'd hunt and you wouldn't really play that at the table it was just something oh that happens you know a day or two has passed i refresh my blood
2: pool i don't really go into the details if you want to go into the minutiae and you want to create plots driven off things that could happen while you're out feeding then i could see some gms indulging in that but it's never something i ever bothered with because it's if you use the cthulhu analogy it's like yeah let's describe the day when you go to do your day job and nothing interesting happens
0: yeah but doing your day job isn't morally reprehensible well as i say that i realize it might feel like it but you know draining people of blood and working in accountancy Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean we can joke about it but two very different things right
1: but i think What we're skipping over is the fact that this is an internal code of ethics now to being a vampire. Yes, all right, back in the original vampire, it was how much you're holding on to your humanity. But now, if you're looking at just feeding on a person as being a necessity, then even doing it by force, that's not necessarily a breach of your own internal moral code. It is if you're still trying to pretend you're human. But as a vampire, Maybe you'd look at it the same way as someone who isn't a vegetarian might look at eating meat.
2: Hmm.
0: Or somebody who's shoplifting who's poor and doesn't have the money to buy food.
1: Yeah,
2: It's a nice little addition, the uh, the path system. For the later Chronicles of Darkness games, they made it a one-size-fits-all chart, which I think takes away, to some extent, the nuances there. But each of the sin charts are very much applicable to the type of monster or the type of creature you're playing. So with Vampire the Requiem, you had a 1 to 10 chart that was very much like the old Humanity System in Masquerade, so we, we've covered that. With Werewolf, it was embracing your shapeshifting nature, so if you didn't shapeshift within a particular period, that was quite a high sin, like at level 10, so not many people are going to get oh, that right. high on the Harmony scale. But then also, going down to the bottom end, using a silver weapon against another werewolf would be a Harmony 4 sin, because mm-hmm. obviously werewolves silver, they don't go together. And then with mage, you had what they call wisdom, which is kind of using magic to accomplish a task that would be achieved as well without using it, such as if you boil tea with forces instead of using a nearby stove, for example, that would be a wisdom 10 sin. Level 7 would be laying a curse on someone, a petty theft, for example. So again, similar to the normal humanities scale. 4 would be using magic to harm someone, and it progressively goes down the list.
0: And if I use my magic to harm someone and do terrible things, Mm -hmm. what's the game outcome of that? How does that affect my character?
2: Your wisdom level can drop.
0: And I use my wisdom for what?
2: It's a substitute for humanity. It's that that's your code that you hold on to. Right. And if your wisdom drops to zero, you become unplayable.
0: Right. So the same with humanity, which is Mm -hmm. something I don't think we
2: said. So if humanity drops to zero, you cease to be a player character, right? Yeah, you become totally the beast. Yeah. Yeah. A monster your instinct is to eat hunt sleep and hopefully not
1: die but that sounds about right to me <laughs> another interesting example is the original cult because you have this weird conflation for a start of morality and trauma which I think in retrospect makes me quite uncomfortable. So the idea is that you have this scale that can go positive or negative, depending on whether you're going on the dark path or the light path. And... Mm -hmm. It is affected by the actions you perform, but it's also affected by the things that are done to you. So if you do something like murder someone, then you're pushing yourself down the dark path. You're sending yourself negative. At the same time, you can also head down that path just by seeing horrible things or by being tortured. And that, I think, is a bit weird. They
2: did change it very slightly between different editions. It's the third yeah. edition that I looked up, uh, Beyond the Veil, because this mechanic uh, called mental balance only really appears in first through third editions. Yeah. You calculate it in character generation for where you start, so that you take the sum of your disadvantages are subtracted from the sum of your advantages, which would then give you a positive or negative figure. And the scale works roughly in increments, that if you're at 15, either plus or minus, then something occurs. 25, something else. 50, 75, and then 100 being when you potentially awaken, when you have to confront your other half. For negative, for example, with negative 15, you diffuse a weak negative aura that makes children and animals uncomfortable or uneasy in your presence. Compare that against positive 15, which is you own a weak positive aura which makes children and animals feel comfortable in your presence. So it's, hey, I feel good and radiate all this stuff, or I'm a bad dude and I radiate that feeling to everyone else. Minus 25, disturbed. You may have the advantage magical intuition. You are so ill that a mental examination would single you out as abnormal. Wow. That's a great way to describe you. Then plus 25, you could also have the magical intuition advantage here. You are known to be a harmonious and stable person whom everybody likes. And it goes up in this exaggerated scale up until the point mm. where you reach a plus or negative 100. Right. And your opposite self manifests. So if you're on the light path, your shadow, your darker side, comes out as a physical manifestation of all your bad thoughts, and you confront it to try and awaken and become your, regain your lost divinity.
0: Right.
1: And the other side?
2: If you're a bad guy, then it's all your good thoughts come out and confront you, trying to tempt you away from that path.
1: Wow. Right. And there are certain things I really like about this mechanic, in that it very much models what is there in a lot of mystical and magical beliefs, which is different paths to enlightenment, what is classically the left-hand and the right-hand path, and the idea being that you can achieve enlightenment through different ways, either through self-denial and purification to the extent where you rid yourself of all your negative impulses and achieve Enlightenment that way, or down the left hand path, where it is basically indulging all your worst impulses and desires to the extent where you just become completely inured to them and can achieve enlightenment that way because they no longer have any hold over you. What it made me think of was
0: playing Prince of Persia in the early 90s, and uh, you meet your, your <laughs> shadow self, and as I
2: recall, you defeat it by sheathing your sword. And it sheathes its sword and walks away. <laughs> There's something like that at the end of um, Legend of Zelda 2, um, The Adventure of Link, where your shadow is your the last boss you go up against. Yes. And the quick and easy way of always defeating it is go far across to the left-hand side, kneel, and keep stabbing. Because this thing will get close enough that it tries to come in with its shield up that you basically stab it in the feet repeatedly and it dies. It's such a lame boss. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, literally, if you're stabbing it in the feet. Yeah, yeah. But like I said, the the thing that I don't like about the mental balance in cult is that conflation of trauma and uh, morality in that you lose mental balance for seeing bad things as well as doing bad things or having bad things done to you. And that I see as being deeply problematic because it's sort of saying that if someone has tortured you or done something horrible to you and you've seen bad things, that makes you a bad person, which I really dislike.
0: Yeah, very much so. I think anything that conflates mental illness with bad character, if it's a crude phrase, but, you know, is, is wrong. And I'm certainly no, I don't claim to be any kind of moral compass for anybody or, or to be particularly morally fantastic. But I think I'm able to make moral judgments about things and act in what I think is a, a morally good way. But I think that's partly a privilege of the society that i live in and the position i'm in because mm. i live in a time of peace and relative prosperity and my life isn't threatened by prejudice and you know i'm, I'm fortunate in that that's what i'm saying there are other people in the world that, that are, their lives are in constant danger If i was in ukraine i'm being physically invaded people around me are being killed and horrible things are happening to them it's going to fill me with like emotions of fear and hate and when you're Fueled by fear and hate, your moral compass is going to be skewed. You know, you're gonna there's things that you're going to do and feel compelled to do that I don't feel compelled to do right now. You might say
1: embrace the dark side. Well, no, it's not even that. It is pure necessity sometimes. Yeah. That if you're starving and your only option is to steal food, then stealing in that case, yeah, is it an immoral act? Yes, it may depend on who you're stealing from. If the person you steal it from ends up starving as a result, is that a different moral calculation than if you're stealing from a a shop that's got a huge stock?
2: I completely agree. It's just that the phrasing that Paul was using was very much reminding me of Yoda's speech in the film. That was was the only thing I was going for.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I model myself on Yoda. What more can you do? But uh, yeah, no, it just occurred to me uh, that, that... when people talk about morality it can become quite a competitive thing to say oh Mm. i'm more moral than you are oh no i think i'm more moral than you are you know it becomes a competitive thing but i think that is to some degree from a position of fortune in life and privilege being able to practice that i think it's a lot harder to be morally what we would judge to be morally good if you're actually in those terrible situations you can still do it but it's, it's a lot harder you mentioned Yoda, Matt. Mm-hmm. There's a Star Wars game, right? And the old D6 West End Games book, which I've I've got to hand right here, has the idea of dark side points, which again, mm. you know, it's not that far from humanity in vampires. So if you do dark things, it's called doing wrong. It's nice and clear. <laughs> it's none of that confusing language. And they categorize that as killing or injuring someone except in self defense or the defense of others. I think that's, you can usually gauge that. Using the force to gain power. Yeah. Using the force while angry or filled with hate. Then you can get a dark side point. If you get enough dark side points, your character can become unplayable and, you know, go to the dark side. Mm-hmm. So it's a fairly straightforward system that kind of mirrors the fiction. Mm hmm. But again, it's about moral choices.
2: Mm-hmm. Easy to understand an alignment system, we be. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, we talked a bit about D and D. I think Dungeon World takes that, and as it does with with all of D and D, it frames it slightly differently. So, if you were a let's say a cleric in Dungeon World, you have a choice of three alignments. You could be good, lawful, or evil, and each of those has A short sentence that if you fulfill it, you get XP, you mark XP. Hmm. So uh, if you're good, if you endanger yourself to heal another, you'd mark XP. If you're evil, if you harm another to prove the superiority of your church or God, you'd mark XP. They're all kind of short sentences that at the end of the game, you can say, did I do this thing or not? And if I did, I mark XP. And if I didn't, then I don't mark XP. It doesn't change me as a character if I don't do those things. It doesn't stop me being a player character. It doesn't stop my character, take my character away from me. But it's just a a vehicle for directing. It's more of a carrot than a stick, I guess. It's a a reward if I play in the mode of my alignment, which I think is a fairly elegant
2: way of doing it. The only other example i could think of off the top of my head when i was searching for games that i've played where morality comes into play it's not to do with experience but it is to do with how the stats on your sheet can change depending on the consequences of your actions and that's from the princess bride rpg that came out from toy vault a few years back i played this down at uh, contingency one year a good friend of mine john gathercole ran it from the quick start guide that was out at the time before the, the full rule book came out because it was in kickstarter and i remember that at one point we were up against this group which if i remember right they'd like stolen our cattle they'd done something that in terms of most rpgs would be fairly low level villainy compared to some other stuff that you can you can come up against in games we found them we cornered them and i think i ended up shooting one of them with a crossbow or ramming them through with a sword or something which again i thought fairly normal in terms of an rpg it's a bad guy you kill him Uh and he didn't like stop the game but he definitely said oh well congratulations you've just ended life someone that had kids someone that was probably stealing this to make sure their family could survive well done kind of took me aback at that point thinking shit okay this is uh very much taking the uh, kind of moral high ground mm-hmm. and there is a section in the rule book that dedicates itself to unnecessary violence and it's got a wonderful uh, opening. I'll, re- I'll read the first bit of it. I won't read the whole thing because it goes over a few pages. But it says The sad fact is that there is something about role playing games that brings out violent behaviour in even the nicest players. I mean, really nice people who are appalled by the thought of violence in real life. Some of them transport spiders outdoors alive rather than squish them. But give them a character who has a sword and knows how to use it, and there will be blood tonight. And yes, I know that's actually a fun part of the game and the enjoyment of vicariously stabbing someone like Count Rugen who really deserves it. It can be a healthy catharsis, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about unnecessary violence. I'm talking about the random city guard who may be questioning your character, but he's not evil. He's just a policeman doing his job, but he's not threatening to kill your character, but suddenly he's dead by killed by the PCs who would have happily accepted five Florins to look the other way, to be honest. Oh, yeah it goes on like that listing a few examples of basically takes that ground of if you can do something by a non-violent method then why don't you
1: yeah i think that's a really important thing and i think that fundamentally that's what a lot of morality mechanics in games are about which is this disconnect we talked about before When we've talked about violence in games where because you don't feel the physical or emotional consequences directly of the actions your character is performing you almost fall into psychopathic behavior if you're not careful because yes all right there's this npc who's in your way the expedient thing is to kill him In real life, you'd never consider doing that because that would involve, well, killing a person. But here, you're killing words, Mm -hmm. and that's very different. But what a morality mechanic does to some extent is tries to reintroduce that humanity into a game that might otherwise not be there yes all right you can kill this person but while i can't make you as a player feel what that would be like i can affect the numbers on your character sheet to reflect Mm. that and perhaps give you pause
2: yeah because that's what they do there's a further example a little way down on the next page in the book that states if a character does that have a look at one of their stats which is called heart which the quick and easy way to describe it is that it's an attribute that shows their or reflects their courage, their level of goodwill, etc. And they say, well, you've killed someone. Okay, is that an accident? Is that what you actually wanted to play a character that can do that? Is your heart level maybe too high? If so, we'll bring that heart level down so that it can more reflect the type of character you want to play. Or if they actively say, no, I'm doing this because this guy needs to die, and you say, right, okay, if you want to keep that heart level at the high level that it is now that doesn't reflect a course of action like that, you are going to feel regret, you are going to feel remorse, and you are going to feel haunted by this, and they will really hit you over the head with it.
0: And what does heart do in the game? So if I'm good, my heart can stay high. If I do bad things, my heart drops. But what does it do?
2: It's one of the core attributes that determines your dice pool for when you perform certain actions. So like maybe
0: befriending people things like that
2: i think it's basically like the social stat
1: yeah okay the other important thing that you talked about there though wasn't just the mechanical aspect of it but also the fact that your gm there humanized the character that you just killed and i think that's something that perhaps we skip over an awful lot in rpgs Let's say you're playing Call of Cthulhu and you're breaking into the museum at night to try to steal the artifact that the Mm. cultists are going to use to summon up some hideous thing. And there is a night watchman on duty and he catches you in the act. And before you realize it, even without meaning to, you've pulled out a gun or hit him over the head or something like that. Maybe you only meant to stun him, but he's dead. I think that's very easy sometimes to skip over in a game because yes all right he was there he provided a mechanical challenge a risk of getting caught and so on but you know once he's dead then you just move on steal the artifact get out of the museum but i think reminding you that that was a person, that you've taken a human life, that there should be consequences for that, even beyond just the police looking for you for the murder or whatever. Maybe you can do little things like, as you're uh, heading out you find or oh, you pass by the guard station and there are photographs of his kids pinned up there and mm. something like that little things to remind you the larger effects of what you've done
0: i'm going to throw in a quote from uh, gary Gygax, and just see what you make of this in light of what you, you just said handling troublesome players is the heading and the second paragraph reads peer pressure is another means which can be used to control players who are not totally obnoxious and who you deem worth saving.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, now there's a judgment. <laughs> yeah,
2: <it's>, uh,
0: <laughs> I kind of feel this whole moral judgment of what players do and trying to hit them with a stick when they do things that you find morally objectionable is very much what Gary would have uh, extolled. And I feel like over recent years, people have really become very moralistic in their gaming and i'm not saying that's wholly a bad thing i just just an observation i think i've Hmm. become very strong in gaming over recent years
1: yeah i'm not saying that there's no room for the old classic D&D, let's go on the rampage, kill a few town guards. Um, orcs are the enemies you can kill without any qualms because they're all bad, that kind of thing. But at the same time, I think part of it is just simply because I'm old now. I don't necessarily find that quite as interesting, that I prefer stuff with more kind of emotional and moral complexity to it that i don't want to feel like the choices that i make are clear cut i don't want to feel like there are bad guys and good guys i don't want to feel like things are too easy those judgments are too easy to make And I don't want to lose track of the humanity in games. Uh, That stuff feels, I don't know, a bit more important to me than than it used to. I'm not saying that there isn't sometimes a bit of liberation in playing an absolute murder hobo, but at the same time, I find that a lot less interesting than I used to.
2: Let's say one of your favorite types of uh, characters recently or in recent years that I remember you saying about was the Percussive Investigator. <laughs> Pick them up by the ankles and beat them until the clues fall out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was one character I played. It was
0: one. I would say there's another game that was interesting in terms of morals that I've played with you, Scott, was Dogs in the Vineyard. Mm. And that's a game in which you play player characters who are take the role of god's watchdogs a group of you going from town to town enforcing if you like god's law on these small communities Mm. in the kind of wild west era and at first i was very confused by it because it seemed like if we were god's watchdogs we'd got to do what god and the holy book said because i didn't know what the holy book said yeah but then I think it was communicated to me that, and I kind of finally got to grips with, whatever my player character, whatever I, as my player character, did decide is the morally right thing. The morally right decision and ruling for what's happened in this town is the right one. Yes. So it's not that I have to figure what's the right one whatever i decide is the right one
1: i think you still have to figure it but you don't have to interpret it based on the text you're given you have to work it out for yourself so i'd say it's more a case that you're figuring it
0: sorry when i said figure it i meant refer to an external source like refer right. to the book of life to see what what that says i always sort of thought oh that, that you know indeed, see what the book of life you know a physical thing in 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 our world actually says to to instruct me but it's not it's uh, the the book of life is a fiction in the game and the play sorry this is starting to get confusing i can tell basically the players decide what is right and wrong yeah Hmm.
2: i I would argue that my copy of the book of life says thou shalt kill yours is just a misprint that says thou shalt not kill
0: (laughs) the interesting thing there is if Scott's running the game, and if me and Matt are players, well, I can decide what I think is the the right ruling in this town and how we should meet out justice or whatever that decision is. But Matt might have a different, almost certainly, would have a different understanding of that. And that brings in a lot of discussion between players yeah. as to what's the right... Often, what's the morally right thing to do here? Oh,
1: absolutely.
0: I've never played a game that focused as strongly on it as that did. I think that was a very sort of emotionally charged game for me i really enjoyed playing it
1: i remember one of the best games that i ever ran was at a convention ages ago and we turned up early to the con so this was playing before the official game slot started and so we had a bit of time to kill so i set up a quick game of dogs in the vineyard We only had two players, Rich Stokes and James Mullen, both of whom are fantastic role players. Mm. And I'd set up this situation where one of the townsfolk had killed herself because of an unhappy marriage. And there was this intense theological debate that erupted between the two dogs as to whether this woman was damned because she'd killed herself or whether the situation that led her to that absolved her of the sin and this just took over the entire game the two of them ended up pulling guns and shooting each other over it because they felt that strongly over it (laughs) (laughs) and i think to a lot of listeners that's going to sound like
0: i don't know is that a fun game? But I'm guessing it was a fun game, you know, for the people participating. Oh, God, yes. it doesn't sound like your regular session, does it?
1: No, no, no. But the heart of the game ended up becoming a 45-minute theological argument between two-player characters, and it was one of the best games I've been involved with.
0: But I think that the mechanics of that game lend themselves very well to that, Yeah, because you go through a series of escalations it very much mirrors playing poker in that you you can start off with a small beard and slowly raise it and raise it and raise it and raise it so you start off just with words and you can escalate through physical violence you can escalate all the way to to gunfire and it depends at what point you know you're going to cut out and Mm. what point you're going to yield yeah i think it it kind of mirrors uh the heated argument and debates that one might have very well
1: the core of the game is, yes, I feel strongly about this, but do I feel strongly enough to hurt someone or worse, kill someone over it? And that's really what it's about.
0: You were particularly good at running that, Scott. I think you excelled at running that because you were very good at identifying perhaps moral dilemmas, but the thing you were good at identifying was when it was worth going to the mechanics because mm-hmm. it wasn't like a dice roll going to the mechanics in this game meant like half an hour of rolling dice and back yeah. and forth mm-hmm. uh, so it was no good doing it for something that was trivial because people would just sort of say oh this is ridiculous rolling all these dice well it would be ridiculous so it has to be something that almost like you're willing to die for yeah uh, or it reveals if you're willing to die for it through the mechanics but But that was what you were good at, Scott, was identifying what what was at stake, or whether it's something you could resolve otherwise, and really Mm. getting to the the crux of what people were bothered about in this conflict.
1: I think it's really important in situations like that, and I think this extends to pretty well any game that you might want to run or write, Mm. that it's really important to create situations in which there aren't clear-cut outcomes. To me, a good scenario involves some kind of good moral quandary, Yes, there may be an easy resolution. Yes, you may just be able to shoot the the branch steward or whoever, but ultimately that comes with a cost that is going to perhaps cause as much disruption as it solves. Shortcuts are going to, like I say, have a cost, but even more well thought out solutions you're still going to have to make compromises you're still going to have to work out who is going to end up being hurt by this
0: but it was never you making a moral judgment of my actions and saying oh paul you've done something bad you're going to lose a point of your special talent because i judge you've done something bad which is what i see in a lot of games you know like Mm. we talked about vampire and, and star wars and and those things that hit you with a stick if me as GM decide that you've done something bad and I don't really want to play that I want to I quite like the idea of a carrot that if I've fulfilled some criteria then I get a reward but the idea of being somebody practicing their moral judgment on what I've done in the game I just find distasteful
1: and off-putting I used to feel very strongly like that, particularly when I was younger. I had some really horrible experiences playing particularly D&D, where there was a DM I played with who very much saw himself as the moral arbiter of the game. And if he saw people doing things that he thought was outside their character's alignment, he'd come up with punishments for it. I mean, that's what you were meant to do. Yeah, I found it incredibly frustrating sometimes because i'd very much disagree with his interpretations of alignment and i just feel like my character was constantly getting beaten up for doing things that were in character yeah but what i feel like nowadays is i mean sure i mean i wouldn't rush to play a game like vampire because it has this humanity scale, etc. But on the other hand, I do perhaps sometimes find it an interesting constraint uh, that if I'm looking at it less from the point of view of this is the GM dinging me because I did something bad and more, these are the rules in which I have to operate. Or, you know, these are the, the moral decisions that I have to make in order to maintain my character. At what point am I willing to breach those? At what point am I willing to take the mechanical hit? For going against that because the situation feels like it demands it, then I think that's potentially quite interesting. That is
0: interesting. But is it you deciding that you breach that moral code or is it me as
1: GM? I think as long as you're playing in a functional game group where you can discuss things like those out of character, if you have a good relationship between the player and the GM, then that's fine. But if you're going back to my teenage experiences of playing D&D, where you've got a dick of a GM who's just looking for every opportunity to to knock your humanity down, then it's going to be a miserable experience.
0: What about you, Matt? I don't know if you still play those World darkness games but you know with the kind of humanity and um, morality mechanics how do they sit with you
2: i find them pretty restrictive to be honest because there's going to be situations that come up in game where you think well this is the logical way to respond to it or at least that's the way you want to right I yeah. mean, if you want to shoot the guy you want to shoot the guy yeah especially if he deserves it as well But it could be that you've got a bad guy that you just blatantly need to kill the guy. You need to put a cap in his ass. But then you say, no, that's a humanity sin that you're going to take a hit for it. And think, screw this! It seems very restrictive in that. I just want to play a game that I can do as the player wants to do and suffer the internal consequences of that. By all means, I've had plenty of characters that have felt remorse over stuff they've done or trauma they've been through. But I don't want it to be a mechanical necessity or a a mechanical requirement that I have to go through that.
1: Mm. So where do you see sanity in Call of Cthulhu fitting into this? So, I mean, For example, in a lot of games, you might have sanity rewards for doing the right thing for saving the right people, or sanity penalties at the end of the game for letting people die. You might have to make sand rolls for killing or torturing a character. Do you see that as another morality mechanic in that respect um
2: there is in if you look at trail of cthulhu they rate the sanity system as a gauge of how human you are
1: mm-hmm.
2: you could conflate it with that that say the, the higher your sanity rating the more human you are or less monster you become you're kind of almost going veering towards the vampire humanity mechanic at that point it's not one i think it's Kind of the story or the scenario will also help to define whether such things are relevant to the game you're playing. But yeah, it's a tough one. Very much, I think it's story dependent.
0: Yeah, I think it is dependent on the scenario. I think some old scenarios that I've read, and then you come to the sanity rewards or penalties... And some of the phrasing of those do feel very moralistic. Yeah. Like, again, it's putting the ball into the keeper's court to say, did your players behave in a morally positive way? And I'm not keen on that. Yeah. Like your example, Scott, of them brutally killing an innocent night watchman. Well, yeah, I think maybe there is a sanity loss for that because I think that makes sense. But there are other ones that I can't bring to mind that sometimes I have read and sort of thought, oh, well, actually, Hmm. that doesn't sound such a bad thing to do to me.
2: There is one I can think of off the top of my head. I won't name the campaign it's from because I was not sure if it made its way into the uh, revised version of it. But it was in the original one that we played Hmm. where there's an incident that takes place at a Turkish bathhouse and stuff goes south rather quickly by the normal way that that scene would play out. And we as a group basically decided, right, we're getting the hell out of here, and we don't uh, go fearful for our own lives. And then as soon as we're outside, the GM explains, oh, yeah, there's all this screaming, there's people running out, bloodied, broken, and bleeding, uh, other people that have died inside. So you're going to take a sanity hit for not saving everyone that you could on the way out. Hmm. Hmm. I remember the group kind of that look of revulsion at that point saying, bullshit, we got out there with our lives. That shouldn't be a sanity hit.
1: I think it's quite a tricky thing to decide when you're either writing a scenario or GMing, because as long as you have sanity reflecting some degree of trauma, as well as supernatural shocks, then exposure to violence or worse, committing violence and letting violence happen casually probably will inflict trauma on most healthy people. You might become inured to it over time, but that's Mm. not really reflected by the mechanics. But I'm sure if any one of us were to kill another person, deliberately or accidentally, we'd fall apart over it. And I don't think it's unrealistic to reflect that, or not even unrealistic, I don't think it's unreasonable to reflect that in the game. But at the same time, it can feel like a moral judgment. You are a bad person, you have committed torture or or hurt this person, therefore I will use the game mechanics to punish you for it. And it's, I think, a bit ambiguous in that respect sometimes. Yeah, and in your example, Matt, of, of running out of the building and not saving
0: people, I think, you know, if you put yourself in that position of, you know, a real-world event where perhaps yeah. you might do that, yes, your gut instinct and probably your behaviour I would probably just flee in panic yeah. and run out. But afterwards, I probably would feel tortured by the survivor's guilt and the fact that I could have helped that person that, you know, I would just see every time I close my eyes, you know, I could have helped that person, mm-hmm. but I didn't. I just ran in fear and I persecute myself mentally because I you know I didn't help that person. So I think that does reflect in the sanity mechanics to me. So I can see the justification for that, but I think it needs to be communicated effectively. You know why if you're giving that reward or penalty, the thinking behind it perhaps needs to be clear, clearly communicated. Thank you.
2: Thank you. 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 You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at BlasphemousTomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
1: It is that time, once again, when we are morally compelled to thank people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new, wonderful people to thank by name.
0: And first off, thanks to Kevin West. And Kevin West has put in brackets afterwards, no relation.
1: I feel like we should launch into, to life, to life, will bring him. (laughs) Is
0: it that West? What do you think, Herbert? I looked it up because I thought, is this a famous person? And there there is a Kevin
1: West, an actor. I just jumped straight to Herbert West. Right. Mm.
2: You were ahead of me. I didn't get that. I've been thinking about different ways to pronounce this one, but I'm going to settle with Doododo. Thank you very much, Doododo. Like it.
1: And thank you very much to Zion J, And
0: thanks to Matthew Baskerville. And also thank you very much to Paul Greenhall.
1: And thank you very much to Campbell Snedden.
0: Thanks to Jason H. And thank you very much to Robert
1: Poynton. And thank you very much to Oliver Steins Gunderson.
0: And thanks to Dakota Wane. And thank you very much to Derek Robertson.
1: Apologies if I get this horribly wrong. Thank you very much to Jonathan Dorje Wendell Jessen. Or Yesen. If I have completely mangled that, please do get in touch and I'll have another run at it and do better.
0: And thanks to Sherlock Kotelson. And thank you much to Simon Grice.
1: And thank you finally to Bill Henderson.
0: Okay, well, uh, you've heard where we stand on morals in RPGs or maybe you haven't. I don't know. Did we get to the bottom of it? You let us know on uh, social media or wherever you want to communicate
1: with us. Yes. If you do want to communicate with us, you can find us on Twitter at goodfriendsofJE. You can find us on Facebook, though we're not as active on Facebook as we are on Twitter. Or alternatively, you can join us on the Discord server that we have, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes.
0: And if you have enjoyed the show, please do jump onto any of those channels and tell other people, or indeed leave a review where you get your podcasts. Well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a
1: goodbye from me. And <laughs> cheerio from me.
2: And a farewell from me.
1: Hello.
0: Sanity rewards, not sanitary rewards.